0: So open up your Bibles to chapter 7. It's been a couple of weeks. We just finished, Ron concluded or finished chapter 6 a couple of weeks ago. But now John writes in verse 1 of chapter 7 after these things. When you look at the Passover that took place in chapter 6 and the Feast of Booze, which now is going to take place in chapter 7, we're looking at about a six-month difference. The Passover took place around April. The Feast of Booze around October. And so what we have here in chapter 7 through chapter 12 is about the last six months of Jesus' ministry. In chapter 13, it picks up in the upper room, okay? So at this time, Jesus' popularity is on a downward spiral. It's only going to get worse and worse. The most significant thing about our passage this morning is that the tide really begins to turn, his popularity is on the decline. From here on, the animosity towards Jesus begins to spread. We learned earlier on in chapter 5 that it began with the Jewish leaders in chapter 5. But now it's going to be slowly begin to spread amongst the crowd. And we're even going to see that even his own half-brothers did not even believe in him. So it's like Jesus' whole world is caving in on him. Have you had, ever had your whole world cave in on you? Or you see, felt that way. Well, guess what? When you go to Hebrews, and, G- and we're told that we have an advocate with the Father, we have one who can sympathize with our weaknesses. If you have ever had your world cave in around you, your Savior understands your cave in. He's had a cave in worse than anybody. And we're really beginning to embark on it this morning in chapter 7. As a matter of fact, today people would say this, he does not have a favorable rating. Okay, his rating has taken a dive. For example, in verse 1 of chapter 7, the Jews were seeking to kill him. That is in reference to the Jewish believers. The crowd was the Jews in general. Okay, well we're going to read about the crowds in a little bit in our passage this morning. But here, the Jews, the Jewish leaders were seeking to kill him. Then in verses 11 and 12 of chapter 7, so the Jews were seeking him at the feast and were saying, where is he? There was much grumbling among the crowds concerning him. We go on further in verse 20. The crowd answered, you have a demon who seeks to kill you. Not very popular, is he? Again in verse 30 of chapter 7. So they were seeking to seize him, and no man laid his hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Verse 32, the Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him. And the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to what? To seize him. We also learned that he was a polarizing figure. He divided people. Back in verse 12 of chapter 7, there was much grumbling about the crowds concerning him. Some were saying he is a good man. Others were saying no. On the contrary, he's a deceiver. He leads people astray. He was dividing people. We see that still in verse 41 of chapter 7. Listen to these words. Others were saying, this is the Christ. Still others were saying, surely the Christ is not going to come from Galilee. Is he? Then verse 43, so a division occurred in the crowd because of him. John just comes out and says it. In other words, the truth divides. What do you mean the truth divides? Well, Jesus is the truth. So Jesus can only speak nothing but the truth. And in his speaking the truth, it wasn't The crowd was divided over his miracles. They were divided over his teaching because he always spoke the truth. Jesus is the incarnate truth of God. Beloved, in our laps this morning, we have the written truth of God. And just as Jesus divided when he spoke the truth, when we preach or teach or proclaim the truths of God's word, it also results in division. And so let's stand together and read our passage this morning. We're just going to look at verses 1 through 13 of chapter 7 this morning. 1 through 13. The title is Why the World Hates Jesus. Why the World Hates Jesus. And beloved, it also is the answer to why the world hates the church. Let's read. After these things, Jesus was walking in Galilee, for he was unwilling to walk in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the feast of the Jews, the feast of booze, was near. Therefore, his brothers said to him, leave here and go into Judea so that your disciples also may see your works, which you are doing. For no one does anything in secret when he himself seeks to be known publicly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers were believing in him. So Jesus said to them in verse 6, my time is not yet here, but your time is always opportune. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it that its deeds are evil. Go up to the feast yourselves. I do not go up to the feast because my name, my time, excuse me, has not yet fully come. Having said these things to them, he stayed in Galilee. But when his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he himself also went up, not publicly, but as if in secret. So the Jews were seeking him at the feast and were saying, where is he? There was much grumbling among the crowds concerning him. Some were saying, he's a good man. Others were saying, no, on the contrary, he leads the people astray. Yet no one was speaking openly of him for fear of the Jews. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just want to emulate and follow our Savior. How in the midst of his world crumbling in around him, from the Jewish leaders to the crowds in general to his own half brothers even his disciples all of them were struggling with who he is many of them hated him many, and he caused division he polarized people and he became less and less popular on his road on the road to galgotha so to speak father and yet he maintained faithfulness to the message that we do evil deeds that we are sinners and that his Father is holy, and he came to redeem them. And so God, as we grow in humility towards our own sinfulness, may we grow upward in adoration for who you are. Oh God, please, may in our humility we exalt you. In our humility we rejoice in you. In our humility we worship you. It's because, God, you are merciful, and you are kind in all of your ways. Teach us this morning. Prepare us to live in the world that we live in today, 2,000 years later, that still hates the truth, It hates to be told that they're doing evil. God, prepare us to be faithful as our Savior was found faithful. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. This morning, we're going to discover why. Why? Verse 7. Verse 7 is kind of like the the, the very center of the message this morning. In verse 7, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me. Notice he says the world. That's all inclusive, right? It's Jews, Gentiles. It meant his immediate world that he was experiencing, but beyond that. Why? Because he testified. He witnessed to it. He taught it. He told it that his deeds are evil. We begin in verse 1 in this passage this morning. Jewish leaders were seeking to kill him. Why? Because they hated him. Earlier on in chapter 5, verse 18, for this reason, therefore the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. When you see John's use of the word Jews, he's talking specifically about the Jewish leaders. This hate began amongst the leaders because he was first and foremost the biggest threat to them and their way of life and their religion that they had developed, because he had not only was breaking the Sabbath, but also calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So that's why in verse 1 of chapter 7, we see that the Jews were seeking to kill him. According to verse 2, it was around the Feast of Booths in October, around that time into September, October, this feast was the most joyful occasion of all the occasions on the Jewish calendar for the year. It's amazing. If you want to write down or listen to these words from Leviticus chapter 23. Leviticus chapter 23, verse 39 and following. I'll I'll read it. On exactly the 15th day of the seventh month, according to the Jewish calendar, when you have gathered in the crops of the land, you shall celebrate the feast of the Lord for seven days, with a rest on the first day and a rest on the eighth day, now, on the first day, you shall take for yourselves the foliage of beautiful trees, palm branches, and boughs of leafy trees and willows of the brook, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days It's a time of celebration. And they would remember the palm branches, the leaves, and everything what 's that reminiscence of when it would be coming up jesus entrance into Jerusalem. What did they do? They called it this triumphal entry. They waved palm branches in celebration. They thought the king was going to come in to take his throne, but instead the king came in to take his cross. As I continue to read in Leviticus, verse 41, you shall thus celebrate it as a feast to the Lord for seven days in the year. It shall be a perpetual state throughout your generations. You shall celebrate it in the seventh month. You shall live in booze, that is, or tents, for seven days. What would happen in Jesus' day, the Jews would congregate to Jerusalem, and they would set up booze, or tents. And it was according to Leviticus chapter 23. All the native born in Israel shall live in booths or tents so that here's the purpose that your generations may know that I had the sons of Israel live in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. It was a celebration of God's deliverance of Israel from Egypt and so that when they were in the wilderness, they lived in tents and they were to celebrate God's deliverance of their ancestors out of the bondage of Egypt. And they did this every October. It's called the Feast of of booze or the Feast of Tents. There's irony here, isn't there? Because as the Jews were celebrating the deliverance, God's deliverance of their people, their ancestors out of Egypt, here came the deliverer who would deliver them from the bondage of sin and they hated him. What irony. So as the brothers were preparing to go to Jerusalem for the Feast of Booze, Jesus is saying, I'm not going to go with you. What irony. I can't go celebrate with you because when I get there, they're not going to really want to celebrate. They're going to want to have my neck. Now, I obviously paraphrase, right? But you get the idea what's going on here. And we should not underestimate the power of the word hate here. They hated him so much they wanted him gone. They wanted his absence. He was a threat to them. Therefore, they wanted him killed. And they would see six, seven months down the road, they would get their way. On the cross. But what sinners don't know is it was also God's way. Isn't that remarkable? Mm. Well, we get to verses three and four. John now picks up on a conversation in verse three between Jesus and his half brothers. Therefore his brothers, verse three, said to him, leave here and go into Judea so that your disciples also may see your works which you are doing. For no one does anything in secret when he himself seeks to be known publicly. Come on. I think at this time what the disciples are thinking is earlier on in chapter 6, verse 66, about six months ago, a result of many disciples withdrew and we're not walking with them anymore. Hey, our church has shrunk a little bit. We need more people. So go go do some really good, sweet, hot things, Lord. Go show how powerful you are. Go heal. Go feed. Go do some more things. we got to get this popularity back. Oh, the wisdom of men. It seemed to them like it was an opportune time for Jesus to gain his support back. After losing a lot of it, what do we do? We take matters into our own hands. A lot of men today change the message in order to gain popularity. A lot of men are just out to be popular. But Christianity or preaching. not a popularity contest, particularly when we stick to the message. And his message was what? Verse 7. Your deeds are evil. Your deeds are evil. The world today, just like the Jews back then, do not want to hear that your deeds are evil. If you want to be known publicly, if you want to increase your following, if you want to get people to like you, then let's go to Judea and you got to show them your powers. It just sounds up front, real practical. It's called pragmatism, doesn't it? It's real practical. This is worldly human wisdom that seemed it would really work. You see, Jesus wasn't just interested in people following him for the sake of following him, but following him for the right reasons because their heart was truly changed. He wants people who've repented of their sins to follow him, not just people following him. And so if you preach the good news without the bad news, all you have is people following Jesus because he's a good guy. He can get me to heaven when I die, and until then I'm going to live life my way. But when you preach we do evil when we preach sin. We also include repentance because that's the very thing we need to turn to to turn to Christ. Amen? The contrast between Jesus' half-brothers and Jesus was a result of their not believing him. Look at verse 5. Look at verse 5. For not even his brothers were believing in him. John's noting this. At this time, at this moment, even his half-brothers did not get who he was. I want you to note in him, in the Greek it's called a dative of reference. In other words, in reference to it, they did not understand what his ministry and his life was all about. ...bondage of Rome. But he did not come for that reason. He did not come to deliver us from social social injustices. The world will always have them. That is a hot topic today, beloved, amongst evangelical circles. Social injustices. As if the church exists to correct them. It does not. We can influence the world against them. Yes, we can. And we should speak against them. But that is not the very purpose why we exist. The purpose why we exist is to propagate the gospel of Jesus Christ. And instead of telling the world that they're wrong, why don't we live it right and show the world that they're wrong? Why the world's calling out racism, we say there's only one race. And not only telling them, we're showing them. By the way we live with one another. Right? Oh, well, we're meddling, aren't we? But God's word meddles in our lives, doesn't it? That's one of the beautiful things about God's word. That's his intent to, to bring it to bear on our lives. Meddles with me and you. Wow. Two things I want to note, and I really just noted the first one, but the second one is the proximity. One's proximity to Jesus does not guarantee faith. Look at his half brothers, <laughs> they grew up with him as family. Listen, just because you were brought up in a family who went to church doesn't mean, that doesn't get you to heaven, that does not save you, right? So first, proximity to Jesus does not guarantee faith. Second, four, four things this is the reason why they didn't believe, John explains, why his half-brothers did not believe is because of the advice they gave. Their advice exposed their unbelief. They were only concerned about popular, being popular, getting a crowd, getting a bigger crowd. And we've learned already, Jesus came to seek and save that was lost. Jesus came to seek those who the Father was giving to him. Their advice showed their unbelief. When someone asks us a question or helps us in life, what does your advice reveal about you? When you give counsel to someone in your family or a coworker or somebody else, What does your counsel reveal about you? Are you giving biblical counsel? It doesn't mean you're necessarily quoting Scripture to them all the time, but it could mean this. Whatever you tell to me, I should be able to go back in Scripture and find it. Whether you're paraphrasing or whether it's in your own words, those words are just because you're spending time in God's Word. And though you're not quoting Scripture, and there's nothing wrong with that, but the words that come out of your mouth are reflective of Scripture. You see that? Their words were not reflective of Scripture. Their words were not reflector of the reason, the purpose why Christ came. They were looking for a throne for him to get up on. He was looking at the cross. They were looking for physical deliverance. And to be delivered from social injustices of Rome, Christ came to deliver them from sin. This was all temporal. He came to give them eternal life. That's why they attempted to give him advice as to how regain, how to regain the favor of the people to win them back, to get back the numbers they lost six months earlier in chapter six. In other words, if you really, Jesus, if you really, come on, bro. Half brother, okay. If you really want the people to like you, If you want to gain their confidence in you, if you want to gain and earn their respect and become popular amongst the people, then go back to Jerusalem and show yourself. That's what you need to do. But Jesus wasn't in it for a popularity contest, was he? No, he wasn't. He wasn't. He came. Here's why. You're not in for a popularity contest when you give people what they need to hear, not what they want to hear. If you give people what they want to hear, you're only in it for a popularity contest. And if people like everything you got to say, then you got to wonder if you're speaking the truth. Come on now, right, Tim? Yeah. How good are they? Let's tell them how good they are, how sweet they are. Let's tell them how wonderful life they can have here and now on earth. Everybody wants to hear that, right? I mean, that's good stuff there. Uh, you know, sugarcoat it. Sugarcoat it. You know what Jesus was facing here? He was facing the same thing Jeremiah faced with Israel. I want to read a few verses out of Jeremiah for you. You're going to recognize this. It's not only what's going on in Jesus' day, but it's going on here today in 2018. Big time. Listen to these words. In Jeremiah chapter 5, he's the weeping prophet, by the way. You know why he's the weeping prophet? Because no one would listen. And there were so many other false prophets going around crying, peace, peace, everywhere peace, good life, that life, self-esteem, prosperity, all these wonderful things. And Jeremiah is going, no, no, you're under the judgment of God. And no one wanted to hear Jeremiah, so he just wept over Israel's stubbornness and rebelliousness. This isn't the Gentile nations that Jeremiah was focusing on, by the way. Uh Uh-oh. And I'm not necessarily meaning the world out there. This is happening in the church, just as it happened in Israel. Now listen. Chapter 5, verse 30 and 31. An appalling and horrible thing has happened in the land. The prophets falsely prophesy and the priests rule on their own authority, not the authority of God's word, not the authority of God's prophets. Today it would be not the authority of God's word. And my people love it so. People love false prophets. People love to hear that everything's okay. People love to hear that they're all right, that they're good. Don't tell me I'm bad. Go to chapter 6, verse 13. For from the least of them, even to the greatest of them, everyone is greedy for gain. And from the prophet, even to the priest, everyone deals falsely. I'm not going to necessarily separate prophet and priest from greedy or for gain, because today you have so-called pastors asking for millions and tens of millions of dollars for airplanes and jets. Well, i got to carry the gospel. Are you kidding me? I'm not making this stuff up. You, you'd almost think you'd, I am, but I'm not. It's embarrassing. Everyone deals falsely. Verse 14, they have healed the broken brokenness of my people. Here it is. Here's the word superficially. They have healed the brokenness of my people. It's superficial. It's an artificial healing. It's only temporal. It's not eternal. It's a quick earthly fix. It's a physical fix, not a spiritual fix. Are you getting this? They have healed the brokenness of my people superficially saying, peace, peace. I'm okay. You're okay. Everything's all right. It's going to turn out fine. Well, yeah. Live your best life now on earth. But when you die, you're going to spend eternity in hell. Right? And we have people today saying, live your best life now. False prophet. False prophet. False teaching. Were they ashamed because of the abomination they have done? They were not even ashamed at all. Listen to this. They did not even know how to blush. They teach their false teaching. They give their false prophets prophecy. They don't blush. They're not ashamed. You know why? Because their conscience is seared the New Testament, would go on to say. And they really actually think they're speaking the truth. But they have scales over their eyes. Satan has blinded them, and they are messages of the devil. That's what it is. All I'm saying is this, it happened in the time of Israel, it happens in 2018, during the time of the church. There's so much more in Jeremiah, but we'll come back to our passage. Go ahead, if you were there, come back to chapter 7. Let's look at verses 6, 7, and 8. Verses 6, 7, and 8, Jesus responds to his brothers. He says this in verse 6, my time is not yet here. My time. Is not yet here. What time are you talking about? He's talking about the time he would enter in Jerusalem and be crucified. Talk about his death. He often used this phrase. He often used this phrase. He'll use it again just in verse 8. Go up to the feast yourselves. I do not go up to the feast because, why? My time has not yet fully come. Look at verse 30 of chapter 7. So they were seeking to seize him, and no man laid his hand on him. Why? Because his hour had not yet come. Chapter 8, verse 20. Here it is again. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, and no one seized him. Why? Because his hour had not yet come. It's not until chapter 12, verse 23, in his final week, that this phrase is turned upside down and spoken in the affirmative. Chapter 12, verse 23. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Well, when did he say that? What's the difference? Why the change? Because he's entered into Jerusalem. It's the last week. The cross is just a few days ahead. That's why. He says it again in chapter 13, verse 1. He says this, now before the Feast of Passover, John says that Jesus knowing that his hour had come. And then we see in chapter 17, just within an hour or two before his arrest, we see this in chapter 17, verse 1. Jesus spoke these things, and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. And he says his last prayer. What's he taking? The cross, his death. Romans 5, 6 says, for while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. You get the picture what's going on here? Jesus' world is caving in on him. We as human beings would look at his situation. He is merely human. He's not merely human, okay? He would look and go, my life's a mess. There's no purpose, I don't see how I'm going to accomplish anything, my world has crumbled in on me, there's no reason for this, the world has won, blah, 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 blah. You ever felt that way? And we all said, amen, we all get there, we're human, okay? We're not Christ. We should never expect the perfection of one another that belongs to Christ alone. So yes, we say, I relate, (laughs) okay? All right? Beloved, it seems as if everything's out of control from a human perspective. But no matter how out of control sinful humanity is, no matter how out of control things look, circumstances, people, men, women, children, whatever, God is always in control. No matter how rebellious people are, how much they wanted to kill Jesus back then, how much they hate him now, it, the, the cross would not happen until the very moment that God the Father wanted it to happen. Everything is intentional. What we have here, and I cannot put it together with all my own mind, nor can you, is we have sinners in the hands of a holy God. And though he lets them, they in their own will, rebel in sin and manipulate and hate, and plan, and do whatever they're going to do, it all somehow falls under the sovereign hand of God. Wow. What comfort does that give us today? What comfort does it give you today? Think about your life this week. Think about the last couple of months. Think about the last couple of days. Think about the physical problems you go through, or maybe with coworkers, or just job, or just life in general, or whatever. Things just don't seem very well, but you've got to know that the Word of God says, I'm in control. That God is in control. Right? It's not about me being in control. Oh, God lets me be in a little bit of control here and there. Yeah. Particularly when I'm following him. Then he says, go ahead, make those decisions. Right? Right? Right, Go ahead and make those decisions. You're trusting in me. You're in my word. I'm molding and shaping you. So go on, make those decisions. But then there's times where this big speed bump is in our way. And all of a sudden our plans fail. And then that plan fails. And that person hurt me. And this physical problem comes into my life. And this and that. We want to question God. And we often do. But in the midst of the storm or storms, God wants to remind us in his word. That I am in control. And there's no better illustration of this than right here in our passage this morning. The model of our Savior. The examples before us this morning in our text. Wow. Wow. Let's go to the next phrase in verse 6. But your time is always opportune. What does he mean by that? He's saying this. Brothers. The world's not hating you, so you can go on down there if you want. It's, you, you can go back and forth all you want, but me, they hate me. So i got to be careful of how I enter in to Jerusalem. I'm going, we're going to Judea. I know it's booze, but you go on ahead, and we're going to see that Jesus follows secretly. But then we get to verse 7. Oh, and here's the, here's, here's the heavy part of it, verse 7. We get to the reason why the world hates him, and this is what he says but it hates me because I testify of it. What do you testify of it? What is it that you're saying that the world doesn't like? And not only not like, but you, that they hate you? Simple. Hey, your deeds are evil. Your plans, your programs, your values of the world are just evil. Oh, man, who wants to hear that? They didn't. They didn't. Fast forward, 2018. Our society does not want to hear that. Now, let me explain to you once again, and I've done this many times, here's why in further detail, because I want to put it in our present-day context. Today, the world hates God. Society in general hates him. How do we know this? Because society in general has taken God out of public discourse. They've taken him out of public discussion. He does not exist, right? They have replaced the creator with evolutionary theory. They've replaced the savior with self-esteem. They've replaced the word of God with feelings or a postmodern thought that says this, whatever truth is to you is the truth. And then whatever truth is to you is the truth. If you want to call green purple, then it's purple. I'm not going to attack you for it. That's truth to you. That's fine. Beloved, that's what's being taught in our universities today. It's absurd. It's absurd. It's called postmodernism, postmodern thought thinking. It's the result of a society that has taken God, removed him out of public discourse, removed him out of their minds, out of society. This comes from Romans. Chapter 1, verse 18. And you're going to go, I've heard that verse before because the pastor about four or five times a year makes reference to that. It may be six or seven. <clears throat> but here's why. Romans is the greatest discourse of salvation in the New Testament. Chapters 3, 4, and 5, salvation. It is the greatest discourse. It is the richest theology on salvation. But we've got to understand this, that before Paul got to that section on salvation, before he spelled out such a wonderful salvation, he spent chapters 1, 2, and part of chapter 3 telling us how evil we are. It's a setup, right? That's one way of looking at it. Because without describing my sinful plight and my bondage to sin and how evil all my, and my wickedness is, That this is who Jim is apart from God. I won't see the need for the Savior. So when we preach and tell the bad news, it's out of a love for the sinner. Because the whole purpose of that is to direct them towards the one who loves them. So we don't beat them over the head with the bad news. And we don't say it apologetically. We just speak forthright. We speak the truth in love. And actually, we say this. I said, listen, I didn't write this. This is my heavenly Father's viewpoint of not just you, but me. And it drove me to the Savior. And that's why I'm telling you my hope and prayer is that it would drive you to trust, you to repent of your sins and to trust in Christ as well. You see that? So verse 18, for the wrath of God revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress, who suppress, who keep quiet the truth. You see, Back in Jesus' day, in John chapter 7, the Jewish leaders wanted to quiet him up. Why? Because he was telling them that your deeds are evil. So they decided to suppress him. And they couldn't keep him quiet because the crowds followed him because of his all the miracles he did. But then with that, he would teach. And he would teach how we're all, our works is as filthy rags, so to speak, like from the Old Testament, Right? And and so so the crowds are kind of like, man, we like what he's doing, but it's a tough message I'm hearing. And the Jewish leaders would come, didn't like anything because it exposed them for who they were. Isn't that what the truth does? See, that's what the preaching and teaching and the sharing of God's word does. It exposes the truth. It says green is green, not purple. And if you believe it's purple, you're nuts. Don't say it quite like that. You get the point, right? I I'm looking. My brother's getting ready to say something back. <laughs> You're nuts too. So, <clears throat> See, they've replaced the creator with evolutionary theory. You see this in our society. We've replaced the Savior with self-esteem, and we've replaced the Word of God with feelings. And a lot of this is, brothers, listen to this. It's not just in society. It is slowly seeped its way into church and denominations. That's why there's churches and seminaries today that teach A theistic evolution. They have blended creationism with evolution together as a compromise. That's why you have many people who call themselves pastors and they preach self-esteem. You know, God wants us to get our worth from him, not ourselves. You see, when you're in Christ, man, you're a child of God. You can't be any more worth. There's no more worth than that. And it doesn't come from me. It doesn't come from my inner man. It doesn't come because I've looked into the recesses of my heart and I found a little bit of goodness there. Oh, I'm worth something. No, it comes from God. He gives the worth, and that worth is found in none other than Jesus Christ. Right? As a matter of fact, when you read through Romans chapter 1 and you see the the devolving of humanity here, You're seeing what man has done is rejected the idea of the image of God in man. What does that result in? Our worth is going downhill. But Satan comes along and blinds the minds and tricks us and deceives us into thinking oh, that we need to gain that self worth back, that self esteem back on our own. We don't have God anymore, He doesn't exist. We got here by evolution, but I got to be worth something. I'm here, aren't I? And so I need to build up my own self-worth to have a better life now. All that is done because we've taken God out of the limelight. God is out of the picture altogether. He does not exist. And, and folks, this did not happen overnight. These thoughts, these, they have slowly s- seeped in, crept in over years. subjective reasoning. It says, truth is what you believe it is to be. If you believe the sky is purple, then it's purple. How about this? You define you. Well, you heard that? I've heard that in commercials lately. Just do you. Oh my God. seriously? That's a Coke commercial. And I like Coke. Diet Coke. But, but I mean, you know, you, you sorry. <laughs> But but the reason why advertisers do it is because it's so catchy and it reaches to them. Because that's what they're thinking. That's where the world society is at. So it reaches out to them. It sounds cool. It sounds good. But it's unbiblical. It's worldly mindset. But But to cheer you up this morning, I want you to know it's even gotten worse. As Isaiah chapter 5 says, we're at the point where we call evil good and good evil right? Abortion's good to a lot of people. LGBT. If that person wants to be that way, you do you. You know? You do you. That's The reason I'm saying this is because that's where our society is, and this is a society we need to share the gospel with. So it's not only understanding scriptures, it's understanding the audience or the person I'm going to be sharing the gospel with to see where they're coming from, Right? It reminds me of Judges 21-25. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. You know, be of good cheer. What's happened or happening in 2018 happened with the life of Israel. There's nothing new under the sun, Ecclesiastes. Nothing new. So, that's what Jesus is dealing with. That's why when Jesus... Spoke the truth. And the truth is we're sinners. They didn't like that. Fast forward to 2018. When you sit down with a loved one or a coworker, or a friend and you share the gospel, you've got to share their situation that they're in. And they're in sin and it's horrible. And their destiny is hell unless they turn from their sin and turn and embrace Christ as their Savior and Lord. That's the bottom line, isn't it? Don't shy away. And so expect to be hated for speaking the truth. But here's another thing because a lot of this stuff is crept into the church, some of this hatred's gonna come from the church. Right? For me to give this message that you've heard this morning at a lot of churches in this country, I would get blasted for it. That's not me. It's because we are compelled to speak the truth, to teach, to preach the word. Thus saith the Lord, not saith Jim Pittman. We're not here it for a popularity contest. And so in verses, excuse me, 9 and 10, having said these things to them, he stayed in Galilee. But when his brothers had gone up to the feast, then, then, he let them go first. Then he himself also went up, not publicly, but as if in secret. Verse 11, so the Jews were seeking him at the feast and were saying, where is he? They see his half-brothers, right? Where is he? He's got to be here somewhere. Meanwhile, look at verse 12. The atmosphere was more and more volatile. The Jews were looking for him, and the crowd was grumbling over him. There was much grumbling among the crowds concerning him. Some were saying, hey, he's a good man because they were focused on all the deeds and the feeding of the 5,000. Even that phrase falls short of who Jesus is, Right? Many people could going to be in hell thinking that Jesus was a good man. Others saying, no, on the contrary, he leads the people astray. Those are the people who began to listen to the Jewish leaders. He's full of deception. So he was polarizing. There's division happening. They were grumbling. But I love verse 13. All this was done kind of in private and secret. They dare not debate this out in public because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders would come down on them. Wow. So what's going on? Number one, people loved the power of Christ but they, and the signs that Christ gave, but they did not like his teaching. I should tell you something about how we should direct our worship service. You should focus on the teaching, not on all the extra stuff going on. People love the stuff. They love the smoke. They love the big choirs. I'm not saying that, well, I would say smoke's wrong. Definitely. No question about that. Well, the choirs are not wrong, but we want the big band. The bigger, the better. The more spiritual we are. No. Not necessarily the case at all. But the point is, they love what Jesus could do for them, but they did not like his message that they were sinners. And number two, what he was experiencing, what he was experiencing, is what we experience in 2018 when we speak the truth to a loved one. Oftentimes you're going to be hated for it. You'll be ridiculed. You'll cause people to grumble. Does that guy think he's holier than thou? you know, you want to share the gospel at break with somebody? All of a sudden they walk away and tell another coworker, this guy's spiritual Joe over here. He's holier than now. You know, you get ridiculed. You, you you'll, you'll get laughed at or something. Because people hate the truth that you represent. It's not you. It's the truth in you. It's Christ in you. So our goal should be, let life, Chris, live his life in and through us more and more and more. But we've got to do that knowing that darkness hates the light. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord God, thank you for Giving this us this glimpse in John seven of Jesus' life with the Jewish leaders, relationship with them, with the crowds in general, with his half brothers, and even not in this passage, but other places with his own disciples. And God, all his relationships seemed to just be crumbling about six months or so before he would enter into Jerusalem for that final week. Six months of his popularity going on a downward spiral, his half-brothers encouraging him to go show himself in his power, to gain back that popularity, at least get, to look good before the people once again. And Father, we live in a day and age where people try to give us good worldly counsel, but instead you tell us to be faithful, not to change the message, not to change who we are, not to change the way we live, but as a matter of fact, God, to persevere and strive even more to live more godly lives. And as Paul says, those who desire to live godly will suffer persecution. And so, God, we say thank you. We praise you. We praise you. You know, Lord God, I'm thinking this one verse, and I'll, I will just go into communion with you. We'll celebrate the Lord's Supper, but it's with this thought. Hmm. Though we suffer in this present life, the glory to come outweighs it eternally. And so, God, what is it for us to suffer a little bit for a little while on earth when you've given us the glory of heaven to come? So, God, thank you. To suffer for you, to be hated for the truths of Christ that live in us, to live for that is awesome. It's a privilege. It's a joy. It's exciting. We're passionate about your glory. And we want others to know about it. We want them to know you as we know you. That's what kept our Lord going. That's what keeps us going. May we be found, God, walking in the steps of our Savior. In Jesus' name, amen.